hold the world's record for standing in one place behind a pulpit. Tonight, if you turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, as we continue our journey here in the book of Hebrews, I want to remind you of a couple of things as we get here to chapter 7. If you may remember that I shared with you when we were in chapter 5, that chapter 6 was really kind of a set of parentheses, brackets, if you will, and chapter 6 encapsulated between chapter 5 and chapter 7 was a statement really directed at those that are attempting to to really negate the grace of God. And so for the Jewish people, one of the things, and probably the greatest thing that they might be tempted to do, would be to turn back to the Jewish faith and the Jewish religion. Because it had been ordained, obviously, of God. God had given the Jews the Ten Commandments. The Lord had given them... Uh, the temple sacrifices. He had given them this incredible tabernacle they drug around in the wilderness for 40 years. He, he had done all these amazing things for them. But I want to draw your attention before we begin in chapter 7 tonight, if we go back just a little bit, back to chapter 5, we're skipping over chapter 6. Why mess with grace? We don't want to mess with grace. We want to abide in Christ. He's going to now go on and talk about this strange character, Melchizedek. And here's why. Remember what he said in chapter 5 and verse 10. Then it says there, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say, hard to explain, since you become dull of hearing. That's really where the parentheses belong. And now the answer to that in chapter 7. The unfolding of this mysterious guy, Melchizedek. And someone that, to a Jew, would be very mysterious. To much of the church, very mysterious. I often get asked questions, you know, who was he and what was he and was he a Christophany? When you hear the word Christophany, that simply means an Old Testament appearance of Christ himself. When you hear a theophany, that would be an appearance of God in the Old Testament as a general rule. So those two things, people often say, well, you know, was it a theophany or was it a Christophany or was it a typology? Another big word. In other words, a type, an analogy that there's a single example of. So what the writer of the book of Hebrews said was, we'd like to explain something to you, but you can't understand it until we tell you about the grace of God. You won't get it until you understand that there's something greater than Judaism. Because remember that the book of Hebrews was written largely to Jews to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah. That was the original purpose and intent. So for us as Christians, it is the most doctrinally correct book in the Bible of explaining who Jesus is in reference to all the world's religions. And so when we look at it, it gives us a very clear picture of how Jesus Christ is different than anybody else that's ever been on the world scene that's been a religious figure. And so we have this incredible chapter 7, now that we're going to take in a couple of chunks, and tonight this mysterious guy, Melchizedek. And so would you pray with me and let's ask the Lord to speak through his word. Father, we're... 
just expectant tonight, God. We want to hear from you as we begin this new year. Lord, we are so grateful that we have a high priest in heaven who loves us. Lord, who, who has opened the doors to heaven that we might be able to enter in. Lord Jesus, that you parted that curtain, that the veil is torn, and we no longer need religion. We, we don't need a high priest made of flesh to bring us into your presence once a year. For the gates always open, the doors open, the temple is open 24-7, 365. We can come in and receive mercy and forgiveness and abound in your grace. And so, God, as we study your word tonight, speak to us through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem... And remember, Salem is, is a word that roughly translated means uh, peace. And so the high priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him, and to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated the king of righteousness, and then also Salem, meaning the king of peace. And so there's two words here that you need to lay hold of very early on tonight. Righteousness and peace. And those two things, in order for us to have the peace of God, we must have the righteousness of God. And so the picture of this is two offices that in Judaism were always completely separate. Those of the line of Judah, the kingly line, could not be of the line of Levite, the priestly line. So you could not ever have a priest who was a king. It was impossible. And so what we have here is a picture of the insufficiency of Judaism. There could never be a ruling peace. There could never be one who sat on the throne who could also be a bearer of righteousness. They were always separated. And so the picture here begins to unfold for us. If you're thinking with a Jewish mindset, how could this possibly happen? How, how could this person be greater than Aaron, who is the forerunner of the priestly line. He was the first of the Levitical order of priests, appointed by God. How could he also be greater than David and the Judaic line, which would bring forth the kings of Israel? He would have to be somebody different and yet have the ability to combine both of those offices. And this is why Melchizedek is so important, especially when you're explaining salvation and the Messiah to someone who happens to be Jewish. And so he says, notice how this happens, without father, without mother, without a genealogy, having neither a beginning of days nor an end of life, but made like the Son of God, and remains, notice this, a priest continually. The things that are said in these three short verses are so unique that they could not have ever been applied to a single person who's ever walked the face of the earth. 
Because the way this person is described, this mysterious guy Melchizedek, is not even actually human. He's got no mother and father. That kind of eliminates you from the human race, doesn't it? So when you talk about this particular guy, he's a very intriguing character. And I would share with you, I don't know how many of you like to watch television shows or, or suspense movies or read novels and things like that. And if you're really hooked on that kind of stuff, if you, if you like suspense, pick up Joel Rosenberg's. All of his novels are just incredible. But what I like to do is I'm kind of one of those people, I like to try and figure out who the bad guy is before the thing's ever done. I'm just like, I want to find, so I always look at the weird characters. It's always the dude that's over in the side of the shot. It's never the person that they're actually zooming in on. It's always somebody else. And you have to pay very close attention to the peripheral actors. Those are not necessarily the main players. And so if I were to ask you, name me the ten most important people in all of the Bible, probably zero of you would have before tonight come up with the name Melchizedek. You wouldn't have gone, oh yeah, Melchizedek. Most of you can't say Melchizedek. So you, 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 you wouldn't have picked him. And yet he is the only true type of Christ that fulfills most of the major components and characteristics of the Messiah that's described in detail. And yet he's this weird guy that appears in Genesis chapter 14, is not mentioned for another thousand years, and then he's not mentioned for another thousand years until the writing of the book of Hebrews. And so he's a very obscure character. But he's a very important character. So from Genesis 14 to Psalm 110 to the book of Hebrews, a span of 2,000 years of human history, and he's just mentioned a couple of times. And yet to the Jewish people, quite a character. The book of Hebrews, as I've told you before, is, is really written to convince people of who Jesus actually is, and specifically the Jews. And so the arguments through the book of Hebrews really are like this. It shows the superiority of Christ in every shape, form, and fashion as compared to Judaism. Superior priesthood, superior order of priests, superior covenants, superior sanctuary that you're worshiping in, superior sacrifice, all those things. That's the book of Hebrews in a general sense. And so it shows the superiority. In essence, it states plainly that Jesus is just plain better than everything. Now, to a Jew, that's like, are you kidding me? Greater than Moses? Greater than Elijah? Greater than the temple? Greater than our lineage? Greater than the priest of Levi? Greater than all of the kings? Yes, greater than all of that. And in fact, so much so that here in chapter 7, we have this one strange guy who obliterates in one personage, in one visit with Abraham, all of the Levitical order and all of the order of the kings, all in one guy. And so begins to unwrap this whole thing. And I want to tell you, so strange is this guy that he's been kidnapped, if you will, by a number of cults and chief among them, the Mormon church. And in fact, they supposedly uh, reenacted and revitalized and brought back into existence when Joseph Smith supposedly got the golden tablets, and he began to translate them in 1823 and finally published them in 1830 into this little goodie called the Book O' Mormon, which I just happen to have a copy of. 
This happens to be one of the ones that hasn't been messed with too terribly much. This happens to be a 1980 version of the Book of Mormon. And yes, I'm going to read it. Only parts of it, though. I don't want any lightning bolts coming through the roof and hitting me or hitting any of you, so I won't read from very much of it. You see, for us, when persecution comes in our life, when trouble comes in our life, when we need God's help, we go straight to the throne of God through Jesus Christ His Son. Amen? See, I have direct access to the King. But in the Old Testament, and this is where this has been hijacked by so many cults, specifically the Mormons to this day, they believed that you always needed an intermediary to get there. And that intermediary was very often, and in the case of the Jews, was specifically a man. And that man was the high priest. No regular human being could ever go into the presence of God. They'd be killed. They'd be fried. They'd be burned alive. They would explode in a flame of glory. You couldn't do it. Someone had to go for you. And so here is the here is where I want to draw your attention to why this is, is so fought over. Because if you can take Jesus Christ and make him less than the Son of God, which the Mormons do, he's just one of Lucifer's brothers. He's one of God's many sons. And if you can reinstate the old order of priests you now have taken Jesus out of the picture and relegated him to just one of those prophets of God. But he's unique in all of the heavens. Here's what the Book of Mormon states, and I'm reading reading from it directly. The words written herein on golden plates were quoted, and this is the words of Joseph Smith, by the way. God forgive me is the account of two great civilizations. One came from Jerusalem in 600 B.C. and afterward separated into two nations known as the Nephites and the Lamanites. And the other came much earlier when the Lord confounded the tongues at the Tower of Babel, this group known as the Jaredites. And after a thousand years, they were all destroyed except for the Lamanites. And they are the principal ancestors of, it says right here, the American Indians. Okay? what it says. I'm reading to it from the first page. Concer- I am. I'm still alive. I haven't instructed yet. Aren't you glad the Lord can read my heart? He's not just listening to the words. Heretic. <laughs> Concerning this record, the prophet Joseph Smith said, I told the brethren that the Book of Mormon is the most correct of any book on the earth, a keystone of our religion, and a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts more than any other book. End quote. So, here's the deal. What Joseph Smith decided that he would do, and this is why I want to share this with you, is he needs to eliminate Jesus Christ as the one and only Messiah. The only way he could do that is try and draw attention back to something that's kind of bigger than life. That would be the priesthood of Melchizedek, because he's very mysterious. 
unless you understand the Old Testament and the New Testament combined. And so here's what happens. Chapter 13 of the very first book of the Book of Mormon is the book of Nephi, First Nephi, just so you know, in case you ever wanted to know what the first book in the Book of Mormon is. In chapter 13, it says this, and in verse 27, And all this they, that is the church, that's us. Okay, That's the perverted church, the apostate church. The reason that they're Latter-day Saints and the reason that this is another testament of Jesus Christ, also known as heresy. And yes, I'm mocking. Because that's how ridiculous this is. Why am I telling you this right now? Because you may well have a Mormon president. You need to know, yes. The sad part is he's probably better than the one we currently have. That's the sad part. And all this they have done that they might pervert the right ways of the Lord. What was the right ways of the Lord? The right ways of the Lord actually is... For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. For there is none righteous, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. That's really the right ways of the Lord. But here's what happens. They might blind the eyes and harden the hearts of the children of men. Verse 28 says, And wherefore thou seest them. Have you ever wondered why a book that was actually crafted from supposedly a language called Reformed Egyptian, which has never existed according to National Geographic and the Smithsonian, never existed, why they would write in King James English in the 1820s? King James died in 1647. Wherefore thou seest that after the book has gone through the hands of the great and abominable church, that would be us, that there are many plain and precious things taken away from the book, which is the book of the Lamb of God. Plain and precious things. Guess what one of those plain and precious things was? The order of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And after these plain and precious things were taken away, and goeth forth unto all the nations of the Gentiles, and after it goeth forth unto all the nations of the Gentiles, yea, even across many waters which thou hast seen with the Gentiles, which have gone forth out of captivity thou seest. Isn't it interesting how it just makes no sense whatsoever? But because of the many plain and precious things which have been taken out of the book, which were plain to the understanding of the children of men, according to the plainness which is the Lamb of God, because of these things which are taken out of the gospel of the Lamb, an exceedingly great many do stumble, yea, insomuch as Satan hath great power over them. So Joseph Smith claims that he knows things, another testament of Jesus Christ, that the church, the apostate church, us, no longer pays any attention to. And so chief among those is the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so it states that very clearly that things have been taken out of God's great revelation. Now let me share a couple of things with you. If you read the Mormon Missionary Handbook, it indicates that only those who are of the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek are able to baptize. In Mormon lingo, that means only they can save you. Here's what it's... Yeah, exactly. Too bad he's dead. 
Here's what was said by Mormon, by Spencer W. Kimball, who was the president, prophet of the church. The priesthood is the power and the authority of God delegated to man on earth to act in all things pertaining to the salvation of men, and it is the means whereby the Lord acts to save men's souls. And without the priesthood, all men are lost. You see, when you start messing with the scriptures and you start to use Christian speak and you twist it and you bend it and you bring back the priesthood of Melchizedek and you make it sound really religious, you get right back to the problem that the Jews had. And that is you need a man to intercede. And that is exactly what the Mormon church teaches. That without the Mormon church and without the priesthood of Melchizedek, the literal priesthood of Melchizedek, you can't be saved. Salvation to a Mormon is one of three levels of heaven, by the way. They do not believe in eternal damnation. But it is, for me, the apostate, there's a special punishment. The reason I share these things with you is people get hung up because when they look at Melchizedek, they go, Wow, he's pretty strange. He's pretty odd. Nobody's ever actually... What if the Mormons are right? They actually latched on to one of the craziest characters in all of the Bible, and they have spent a lot of time trying to explain why it is they actually have the priesthood of Melchizedek now. So that's why you're going to find out what the real priesthood is tonight. So that nobody gets messed up. And by the way, they didn't even agree amongst themselves as to who he was. And so, don't get hung up on it. Realize that this guy is a picture. He is a type. He is one whom we can look at and go, wow, nobody's ever done that except Jesus, who is the Christ. And so, as we begin to break this down tonight, notice a couple of things about him. He's without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. When you find Melchizedek, when he comes on the scene there in Genesis chapter 14, that is the exact picture you get in Genesis 14. Abraham doesn't have any idea where he comes from, doesn't know what land he rules in other than he's given his name and he's given the place that he supposedly comes from, which, by the way, likely was actually the city Jerusalem in that time. The city Salem, which is Jerusalem is just a lengthened version of Salem, which means peace. So he's the king of peace. He is also the king of righteousness. He appears for a brief moment in time, comes back on the scene in an in obscure rendering there in, in Psalm 110, verse 4, and then isn't mentioned again until the book of Hebrews. And so when you look at these truths about him, you're going to see some things that are very consistent with only one character in all of human history. And it's not a man. It isn't a person. It is God himself. Notice first that he was both priest and king. In the Old Testament economy, the throne and the altar were completely separated, as I shared with you. They were two totally different offices. There was never a priest and a king. And so in order to do this, it's a physical impossibility in Judaism. It is still a physical impossibility in human terms today. You cannot have both. And in fact, our form of government specifically dictated that they would not be joined together. 
That is why we have the separation clause that's actually in the Constitution. It's so that the church was not polluted by the government office. Not the other way around, by the way. Our founders actually saw this as something that needed to be done. We don't want to have the civil running the spiritual. And so we'll separate those two things out. It was always that way in God's economy until Jesus came on the scene and was able to hold both offices at once. Aaron never had that privilege. He was never anything other than the high priest. And so this particular high priest is the king of righteousness. In other words, his kingdom is a righteous kingdom. Who is that guy? Of course, it's only Jesus. Because the only way to have righteousness is to be accounted unto you righteousness. You'll never be righteous yourself. That's why scripture declares there's none righteous, not one. The moment you get saved, probably within 30 minutes, you've already done something that actually still needs the forgiveness of God. Amen? You need a king who is righteous. You need a priest who is ever interceding for you. And they better talk to each other constantly. The good news is, is when you have one person who holds both offices, you don't have to worry about either. Amen? You got the whole deal covered. Righteousness and peace are always... Uh, seemingly linked throughout Scripture. In Isaiah 32, it says this in verse 17, And the work of righteousness shall be peace. Do you get the picture? The work of righteousness is peace. When I have righteousness at work in my life, I have peace with God. Do I not? So if I have a king who is also a priest, guess what's going on? I have my civil life and my governance of my life. You ever wondered why we call Jesus Lord? At the heart of it is he is the king of peace. And he is the king of righteousness. So when he rules in your life, as this strange guy Melchizedek ruled this kingdom, you have peace in your life because you have a righteous reign. That's the way we're supposed to respond when we have Christ in us, who is our hope of glory. Psalm 85 says, Mercy and truth met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. In other words, they're joined together. Psalm 72 says that in his days the righteous shall flourish and the abundance of peace shall be so long as the moon endures. Righteousness and peace linked together gives us a picture of what Jesus does, what Jesus has brought us, what did not exist under the Old Testament economy. You did not ever have peace totally with God. You had a circumstantial peace for a very temporal point in time. When, when you went into the court of the tabernacle, or whether you went into the court of the temple, when you went in, the first thing that you did is you went through a multicolored gate. That multicolored gate said, all are welcome. Anybody can come in. But the first thing that you're met with is a brazen altar, whereon your sin had to be dealt with. Because you couldn't go any further without dealing with your sin. And in order to have that done properly, you had to get bloody. There had to be shedding of blood. An animal was sacrificed and it was put on the altar. And that was consumed. It was completely burnt up as a general rule. And once that happened, the the priests that were ministering in the courtyard would have to go to the the bronze laver, which signified the washing of the Spirit of God, and they would have to clean themselves. 
and so that they would not ever get anything back on them. They would rinse their hands, and so that it didn't stay ever on their hands. They did not turn their hands down towards the earth, but they turned their hands up towards heaven, so if there was any blood, it would drip off of their elbows to the ground where it belonged. This was an intense thing that they had to go through to get right with God for a few minutes. And then once they got going through that step, and they would step in through the first curtain into the temple or the tabernacle, in through the doors of the temple, but into the door of the tabernacle, once they got inside, they would come immediately and be faced with the table of bread, the bread of life. And then the altar of prayers of the saints, the incense altar, and then the giant candle stand. And so you had this picture that God was watching and God was listening and God was working and God was speaking. That's what it was telling you. But what it was telling you was this. Stay out. Because the next thing was a gigantic curtain, probably someplace between eight and six inches thick, that said, you can't come in here. The only person that could go in was the high priest, not the king. And whenever in the Old Testament someone tried to combine the office of king and priest, God killed them. Whenever someone would offer profane fire like Nadab and Abihu, they would try and do it themselves. God killed them. He was giving us a picture that there would always only be one way to do that. And it was someone who was coming later, and this guy Melchizedek was a picture of who this person would be. And so it was never a man. It wasn't supposed to be a man. They were looking much further ahead than a man. Notice some of the things that happened to him. Verse 2, it says he received tithes from Abraham. Some people have asked, you know, well, how come we still tithe? Because I thought tithing was, was not found in the New Testament. That's actually correct. And here's why. It predates the Old Testament. It actually is ahead of the Old Testament. And was before there was an Old Testament or a New Testament. And it was a sign unto God. And the tithe always belonged to God. And it was just simply means a tenth. So a tenth of all that was given was given before there was an Old Testament. And it was given to God's representative, the priest. And so the, the tithe has always gone into the church, in essence, if you will. And it was for the things of church, the things of God. And so we see here Abraham, who does not know who this guy is, actually. But he knows two things about him right now. He knows that he is the king of peace, and he's the king of righteousness. And those two things are greater than anything that Abraham currently knows. And so he says, you have to be greater than what I already know. And so he gives his tithe unto Melchizedek. Why? Because he was a representative of God. The record of his life, Melchizedek, is, is basically just a type of Christ. He's a picture of the eternal. Notice he has neither beginning nor end of days nor end of life. And, of course, we talk about Jesus when he got here. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He was killed. He laid three days in the grave. The grave could not hold him. He was raised on the third day. He was alive. And he ascended to heaven. 
And he's still alive. And so when you think of Melchizedek and someone's explaining who this Melchizedek guy is to the Jewish mindset, they're going, hmm, what was that thing they told us about Jesus? Oh, that's right. They didn't, his mom, she had like an immaculate conception. She was supposedly just betrothed to Joseph. They hadn't actually known each other physically, and she gave birth to a son and laid him in a manger. And when he was grown into a man, he was persecuted, and he was killed. And I think the story goes that he was put in the grave, and he somehow got out, and he was seen by 500 people at once, and he ascended unto heaven. And people have been dying by the hundreds of thousands with that particular story on their lips and refused to give it up. So to a Jew, this says to them, wow, that's that Melchizedek guy that Abraham met on the plains of Shinar. Notice that he also abides as a priest forever. Anybody know of any of the Old Testament priests that live forever? The reason you don't is because none of them did. They were all men. They couldn't abide forever. They couldn't be a priest forever. They didn't live forever. Melchizedek was pointing towards someone who would actually be an eternal being. And so when you look at his picture, when you look at who he is, the order of Levi had all kinds of priests. Matter of fact, we'll find out here in a little bit that actually the former priests on one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. It actually says their line was intended to end. end. They weren't supposed to be forever. The priesthood was supposed to finish and be done with. All God was doing was giving everybody a picture of the need. That the law of God, the Old Testament function of the priests and the prophets, all of the Old Testament sacrifices, all of it were insufficient to take away and completely deal with sin. No one was ever completely forgiven. There was a constant cycle of having those things shelved for a period of time. And yes, God dealt with them in that sense, but he never dealt with them in finality. And so Jesus' eternal priesthood is very similar to what's described in the priesthood of Melchizedek. He's going to last forever. No human being could ever do that. No human being ever has done that. And it's interesting, too, that Jesus, remember, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, was he not? So he could not have ever been a Levitical priest. So if he's going to be a priest and king forever, guess what he's got to be greater than? He's got to be greater than both of them. He's got to be greater than Levi, and he's also got to be greater than Aaron. He's got to be a different type, and that's exactly what he was. He didn't need to be either because he was after the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And nobody knows where Melchizedek came from. Nobody knows where Melchizedek went to. So the likeness of Melchizedek is the likeness of Christ. He's eternal. He's divine. Verse 4 goes on to say, And now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Remember, Abraham had just come back from fighting a war with the with the Chaldeans. And here he brings back the spoils of war. The spoils of war always went to the king. So the fact that he gave the spoils of war to the king, 
whom he also paid homage to, was a very unique situation. And in fact, it's the first recorded incidence of that ever happening. In fact, it is the only incidence of that ever happening. Even the disciples didn't quite put that whole thing together until Jesus was risen from the dead, did they? Matter of fact, they weren't sure who he was. When he told them, well, you, you kind of need to be able to drink from this cup that I'm going to drink from, and I'm not sure you can actually do that, so you might want to hold off on that a little bit, Peter. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, and that is their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. So in essence, they're saying, on one hand, you've got the priestly line. On the other hand, you've got the kingly line. There is no way to link them unless you've got someone who's greater than both. But whose genealogy is not derived from them received the tithes from Abraham and blessed them who had given them the promises. What happens, hear this, what does Malachi say to the person who gives tithes and offerings to the Lord? See if I will not pour out upon you a blessing. So where does that blessing come from? That blessing actually comes from God. So when someone is giving in tithes and offerings, they're giving to the Lord. And so in essence, what's being said here is as these tithes and offerings were given to Melchizedek and he gave them a blessing, it was something that no priest could do. And it was something that if a king did it, it was only temporary. A new type. And now beyond all their contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Notice this, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witness that he lives. For even Levi, who receives the tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. In other words, Abraham, as he paid tithes to Melchizedek, was saying, there is a priesthood and a kingship that's greater than anything you know. Because by a figure of speech to a Jewish person, they were always associated with their ancestry. And so even though they themselves didn't do it, Abraham did, and thereby they were associated with it. So in essence, the great Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, if you will, said that there's someone greater than Levi, and there's someone greater than Judah alone. And to him, I'll give my tithe, I'll honor him. For even Levi, who receives tithes, paid them through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And so when you keep in mind these things, these contrasts that are being laid out here, it's true, the descendants of Abraham paid tithes to the priest and to the sons of Levi, but the emphasis now is on what Abraham did, because they were associated by their genealogy. They're associated with Abraham directly. That's why he is the God of... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're all direct descendants of whom? Abraham. So if Abraham does something and he is the father of all of the rest of them, by default, everybody else is obligated to do the same. And so they say that there's going to be some guy that's going to come on the scene and he's going to look kind of and act like and be like and his, his characteristics of his life are going to be like this strange character, Melchizedek. He's timeless. 
And so what was true for Melchizedek is far truer and fuller in a literal sense in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The priesthood of Jesus has never been passed on, has it? It's not passed on. You happen to be, by, by the nature of who we are in Christ, you are priests unto your God. Because you can now go in. Amen? Praise the Lord, you can. Sometimes people, well, you know, there aren't any priests. And when, so when someone calls a human being a priest, it really diminishes the office of what priest actually means. Because there's only one now. And his name is Jesus. He's really our high priest. The rest of us can actually have access to God the Father through the one high priest. So that makes us also priests. That's why when you talk about the body of Christ, that one day in the millennial reign, that we will literally reign as priests and kings forever. That's what the book of Revelation says. The reason it says it is because in the Old Testament economy, there was a high priest and there were the temple priests. And guess what? We're all now temple priests, in, in essence, in that vein. We can now directly serve the king. We no longer need everybody else to do it for us. There wasn't one guy who was really good and a bunch of guys that were kind of sort of okay. We all have direct access to God the Father. And so Abraham, even Levi, receives those things that were designed only to be given to God. And nowhere, in essence, is, is what's being said here, was there any ability to ever pass this priesthood along? So when Joseph Smith says that we're going to revive the Melchizedek priesthood and we're going to make everyone who becomes an elder in the Mormon church after the order of Melchizedek, you can say, mm, that's not what my Bible says. My Bible says there's only going to be one and he will be a priest continually forever. And that one was the high priest, and there was always only one of the high priest. And so when you talk about that guy that they claim to have now captured, and they are now an example of here on this earth, you can say, no, my Bible doesn't say that. Because they'll point you to the book of Hebrews. They'll also point you to the book of Nephi, and they'll point you to the doctrines and covenants, and a whole bunch of other things, which are kind of interesting, actually. Uh, doctrines and covenants in actually the 107th chapter, the first verse there, it says, there in the church are two priesthoods, namely Melchizedek and the Aaronic priesthood, including the Levitical priesthood. So they claim to have revived the Levitical priesthood. That's interesting because no one can chase, can follow their lineage all the way back to Levi anymore. It's impossible. You can't do it. And so it, it can't happen. And the reason it doesn't need to happen is because Jesus superseded both of them. He took over. He now is the only priest that you need. When we look at all these things and the nonsense that quite frankly floats around, the Greek word that's, that's translated here, you'll actually see it when we get to verse 24. It says permanently that he becomes his, his, his priesthood is permanent. It's apoboratos. And apoboratos is something that is literally untransferable. It's one of one and cannot be transferred. It's like when you're the president of the United States, there's only one. We have a vice president, but until the president is actually dead, there can always only be one. So the example is that when someone is that type of, of an example, there can't be any others of them. And if that one is eternal 
and never dies. He didn't have a beginning. He didn't have an end. We don't know where he came from, but we know he simply was and still is, and he is one of a kind, then he is still the only one. Amen? God's only begotten Son, who takes away the sin of the world. He, he functions in that role of high priest continually. He will never not be the high priest of heaven. You, you won't ever have to worry, well, you know, the high priest changed. See, one of the problems with the Mormon church is, the living prophet, the apostle, the president of the Mormon church, changes constantly. He goes for a long time. Every once in a while, you get 20, 30 years out of one. But then they croak. And they have to transfer it to somebody else. And the problem is, is over the years, they have contradicted one another very regularly and very frequently. And so what one says, like the very first prophet, Joseph Smith, when he said that, God is, Jesus is, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. In other words, he literally believed that God was a human being at one point in time who was exalted to Godhood. That's not one of one. That's one of a whole bunch. And so it's a very different, even if he was a God, he'd be a different kind of God and incapable of being high priest. And so Melchizedek is, is painted here. Uh, is this incredibly unique, one-of-a-kind individual whom in the Old Testament everybody would have been going, wow, what about him? Whatever happened to this guy? He was here. He was gone. We don't know where he came from. He's a priest eternally after his own order, an order that is nothing like we know now. So you're probably thinking, who cares? Well, you need to care because every one of you is a priest. And if you think you've got to belong to some other order of priests, or if you need some other priest, like when out of, and let me just say this, I know that it is always out of respect. I have people relatively frequently call me father. I have been called priest. I have been called reverend. Uh, the only thing reverend on me is my chucks. I... There is exactly one who deserves your praise, and his name is Christ Jesus, your Lord. There, there isn't another one you need to go to. There's no hierarchy. You know, it, sometimes, and I've had these things where I've been in public venues and meetings and before city councils and mayors and all those kinds of things, and I'll be representing Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and I actually had a guy one time in a city council meeting, we want to see the Pope. They were talking about Chuck Smith. They literally thought there was a structure and like he was the Pope and I was like a bishop or a cardinal or something. I don't know. There's exactly one high priest in heaven. His name is Jesus. He didn't have a beginning because before the foundations of the world, he was. Amen? His name is the great I Am. He is a self-existent one. He is the uncaused cause of everything else. So he doesn't have a beginning. And because death could not defeat him, he also has no end. So he is eternal. This is the picture. So when someone says, well, we've got a new priesthood, it's after the order of Melchizedek, and so we're special, you can say, that job's been taken. There's already only one of those. And his name is Jesus Christ, who is my Lord and my Savior. You see, we need to know these things. 
I would also draw your attention that the term priest in relation to a human being is not ever used in the New Testament. Never. Not once. It's not applied to people. That's why when somebody says, well, you know, I went, well, I want to talk to the priest. I say, you can. You can go direct. You have a one-way path, go straight there. You can talk to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords yourself. You don't need a man. You don't, I don't have a special phone on my desk. Like the red hotline that just has one button and it says God on it, you know, where I punch it and it's just, you know, like, people talk to me like that. I'm like, well, you have a direct line to God. Uh, no, it's a party line and we're all on it. I grew up in a day and time when we actually still had party lines and you would pick up the phone and you're talking and somebody else would be on there talking at the same time. Hey, Mabel, that was my grandmother's name, by the way. Mabel, get off the line. I can hear you over there. Aren't you glad that you got a direct line to the great high priest and he picks up the phone 24-7, 365, and you're going to be the only one on it, as far as he's concerned, because he hears the prayers of his people. He's listening. He cares. You don't need me. You don't need Calvary Chapel. You don't need the Mormon church. You don't need some special ritual. You don't need a robe. You don't need shoes. You don't need anything but Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. For He is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Him. Why? Because He was the one that Melchizedek foreshadowed. That's who was being talked about. Though I believe Melchizedek may well have been an actual real king and a real priest, a real character, a person. He may have been a Christophany. I don't really think so because it kind of diminishes the whole rest of the picture. But I I believe with all my heart what he was saying was, be looking for this guy. So that when you read the rest of Scripture, all of a sudden you're going, wow, hmm. I, I have a great high priest who's ready to intercede for me constantly to whom I give my honor and and the things that I I want to deliver to the Lord, I deliver to Him. I would also draw your attention that there's no if that's attached to your salvation. There's no if that's attached to your justification. There is no if attached to your maturation or your sanctification or ultimately your glorification. There is no if. You know why that is? Because Jesus is. Because Jesus is, there's no if. It's not if you do. It's not if you are. It's not if those things occur. It is because He is that you one day will be with Him forever in paradise. He he is that sure and that certain. When you trusted in the Old Testament high priest, it was really iffy. And in fact, he may not even make it to the mercy seat. That's why when you looked at the priestly garments and they had on a breastplate on them the twelve stones of the tribes of the children of Israel. And around underneath that would be an ephod. It was made out of the royal color purple. And then the robe that was underneath that and at the bottom of that were tassels with bells and pomegranates. And those things represented the prayers of the saints. 
And they were indicative of when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, that as he began to intercede, you could hear those bells going because he was not supposed to stand still in the presence of the Lord, for it was holy ground. So he constantly moved. And they could listen from outside because they could not go in themselves because they weren't worthy, but they could listen from the outside. And as they listened from the outside, as long as the bells were going off, it was all good. But if the bells ever stopped... Bummer on you if he was your high priest, okay? Because he was now dead. And so you grabbed the scarlet cord that was attached to his ankle, and you jerked on it real hard and pulled his cold dead carcass back underneath the, 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 the veil. Why? Because he was human. He had a beginning, and he had an end, and he was completely imperfect. And in fact, he had to offer sacrifices for himself first, but not so the one who's after the order of Melchizedek, because notice he never offers sacrifice for himself, ever. He simply was. He received the tithes from the people, and he disappeared from sight. But he's still around. going to be kind of cool to meet him, get to heaven. Hi, I'm Melchizedek, the weird guy. There's no if. You don't have to worry about your high priest not being sufficient for whatever your deal is. Amen? So if you're struggling with something, he's greater than what you're struggling with. He is better than anyone who's ever gone before. Maybe you've had that person in your life. Maybe you've been like a mentor or she's been like a mentor. has been there to pray with you and to help you through those difficult things. You can go direct to God through Jesus Christ, your great high priest. The same was true of the picture of Melchizedek. He just simply took the offerings and said, I'll take them straight to God. I'll, I'll take them there for you. That's why First Peter chapter 2 says, He bore our sins on His body. He took them direct. They go straight to God. When, when, when you think about your life being cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus did it for you as your great high priest. It's done. The Old Testament high priest, not so much. Taken care of for a period of time until the next year's Yom Kippur rolled around. Then you reconfessed any sins that you repeated. You confessed all of your new ones, and they were put away for a period of time, yet still to be de dealt with. They were never dealt with in finality. But because of your great high priest in heaven, they're done. They're over. They're erased. They're esponged. Any other word that you care to use, they're taken care of by the blood of the Lamb. That's the picture of the great guy that we see in this chapter, Melchizedek. First Peter chapter 3 says, The righteous for the unrighteous. You see, a priest could only do so much. Because at the core of every priest was a human mind and a human soul and a human body. So those Old Testament high priests could only get you so near to the Lord. Matter of fact, so holy is the Lord that it said of him that to see God would be to die. You would be consumed by his holiness. So no matter how good a high priest was, he never got the full glory. Same reason that Moses didn't get to see God directly, amen? He just got to see his shadow. And that caused him to glow for 40 days. You know, he was walking around kind of with a little Shekinah going on. 
If he'd have seen the full glory of the Lord, it would have killed him. And so the Old Testament priests, as they went in, yeah, you got kind of close to okay with God. You know, all your stuff was boxed up really pretty and neat and in a nice package. Here's Jeff's filth. And we'll put it up here on the shelf. And we'll deal with it at a later date. Because I'm not quite sufficient to do that as the high priest, if I'm the high priest. I can only get you so close. But because of Jesus, you can enter in. Because of the one who is typed by Melchizedek. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says, He, which is God the Father, made Him, Jesus the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, the only way to do that is to take care of the sin. You can't just put it away. You've got to deal with it completely. Righteousness, peace. When you have the righteousness of God, you have the peace of God. And you can't have the peace of God without the righteousness of God. And righteousness is absolutely righteous. There's no such thing as partial, right, partial righteousness. Do you know that? There's no, you can't get partway there. You either are or are not righteous. Because righteousness is the characteristic that is possessed only by God. So the only way for us to have that righteousness is to have Jesus' righteousness. You don't get your own. You get His. He was made sin for us, and in our place was placed His righteousness. That's why Melchizedek is so important. Because righteousness and peace somehow got put together. The kingly line, the Levitical line, put together in one person. It's a picture of Jesus. I have a Jewish friend. Well, actually, some of you know him, Jeff Dorman. He actually, he actually gave his life to Christ because of the book of Hebrews. And he's devout Jewish family, okay? Synagogue, the whole shooting works, the curls, yarmulke, all of it. But he read Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. And when he realized what it said, he realized that righteousness and peace had to be linked together. He actually thought about who, who this Melchizedek guy could have possibly been. And he came to terms with, if it was not a Christophany, it had to be a picture of exactly one person in all of human history, and it was Jesus. And it says there in verse 5 and 6 of Isaiah 53, For he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. For all of us like sheep have gone astray, and each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. You see, he is our righteousness, which has produced the peace with God. And the only way to have it is to have Jesus. The Bible simply says there in Acts 16, to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It doesn't say anything. Notice it doesn't say anything about go to church, buy a Bible, join a club, find yourself a good priest. You know, get to know a pastor personally. Take him out to lunch. Doesn't say anything. Doesn't say become a missionary. Doesn't say teach Sunday school. It says believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Why? Because righteousness and peace have kissed each other. They're found in one. And through the one, you can have access to God the Father. 
That's why John 3.16 says what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him, believe in the one who's the Melchizedek priesthood, the priesthood that's above the order of Levi, the one who's greater than the kings of Judah. You believe on him, you'll be saved. To believe in a church, not so much. To believe in a pastor, absolutely not. To believe in a denomination, can't save you. Certainly to believe in the Melchizedek priesthood reincarnated in Mormonism. Won't do it. Can't do it. Never was supposed to do it. Matter of fact, it was supposed to tell us exactly how impossible it would be without Jesus. So that we'd look at it and go, man, it's got to be him. They don't meet all the qualifications. No church does. He doesn't. No person ever has or ever will. There's only one who meets all the qualifications. And his name is Jesus. Amen? He's all that you need. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with your heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. Again, righteousness. I believe in Jesus and I'm righteous. And with the mouth I confess, resulting in salvation. And when you do that, you got the straight to heaven card. You don't have to stop. Don't need a man. You get to go because he's righteous. And you get to claim his righteousness. Amen? Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this incredible picture of this very strange person. Or this one whom no human being could have ever met all these qualifications. And so, Father, we're grateful that it is in you, Jesus, that righteousness and peace have kissed one another. We thank you. We praise you. We thank you for this great salvation that we have, Lord. The fact that we can talk to you right now and we know that you're listening. Lord, that you hear our prayers, you answer from heaven, that your eyes are always on your children, your ear is attentive unto our call. Lord, we cry out for Pastor Chuck tonight. We pray that you'd touch his body. God, you could heal that cancerous tumor in his lung. We believe that. Uh, you spared him from so much over these last couple of years, and we just simply ask that you would just revive him again. And Lord, as he's probably finishing up teaching right now and then seeing some doctors on Friday, we pray that you just strengthen he and Kay and Brian and Cheryl and Chuck Jr. and Jeff and Lord Jan, the whole Smith clan. We pray that you'd just be with them and comfort them. And Lord, for the millions around the world that have been touched by this man's life, God, we just thank you for what you've done. And we pray that as you have blessed us with your presence through Jesus, that you would also just be with Chuck tonight. Watch over him. Keep him. Lord, bless him. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you are a high priest in heaven and we need no other. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, family of God.